chapter 15. And as you are finding your seats, I would uh, just remind you, if uh, you're not a member of Southview, you're a regular attender, we'd really like to have you be a formal member of, of the church and uh, certainly come and talk with us. It's, it's easy to become a member of Southview, just three things involved. Uh, we wanna, want you to have a credible testimony, so we want to hear your testimony. And uh, as a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, we do believe after you are a believer, uh, the Bible commands you to be identified with Christ in baptism. And then, uh, so that would be important. And the third thing would be you're in agreement with our doctrinal statement. But we'd love to have you join if you're a regular attender. Uh, you know, it's okay to be a proselyte at the gate, right? We'd like you to come all the way in. <laughs> anyway, being funny here a little bit. Matthew 15, uh, verses 21 through 28 is what we want to look at this morning. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Uh, minister to our hearts as we study together. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly now. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. We have worked our way through Matthew up to uh, chapter 15. We're in that section uh, I've titled here on the, on the outline, uh, The Revelations of the King. Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience, and he is establishing the truth that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, as prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures, who would come as both a deliverer and a ruler. He would be both God and man in one person, the God-man. But God's ways consistently are not our ways, and they consistently take us by surprise. His ways are ever above our ways. Isaiah 55, 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If Jewish society in Jesus' day was to vote on who would most likely go to heaven the vote would, hands down, have gone to the Jewish religious leaders, known as the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, they were considered the most spiritual, probably because they paraded themselves before all as such on a regular basis. However, in Matthew 15, we see that the scribes and Pharisees, who came from the elitist capital of Jerusalem, they came to confront and try to discredit the ministry of Jesus Christ. Well, in contrast to these hypocritical religious male leaders was a Canaanite woman uh, in Gentile territory who came seeking Jesus not to criticize, uh, or uh, yeah, she came not to criticize, but to humbly ask for help, in contrast to the religious leaders who were criticizing. Well, the religious leaders were exposed by Jesus as being vain worshipers who were not saved, not being planted by the Heavenly Father, as Jesus put it. In contrast, this woman with a despised pagan background is shown to be a true worshiper of great faith. Amazingly, the religious leaders who knew the Scripture so well rejected the truth, while this pagan Gentile woman with no respective background, embrace the truth. Truly, God's ways are above our ways. The tension was mounting between the religious leaders in Israel and Jesus. We saw in Matthew 15, 10 through 20, that Jesus, in effect, with one swoop, really did away with that entire legalistic, Judaistic system as taught by the religious leaders, saying, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but those things which proceed out of the mouth, come forth from the heart, 
and they defile a man. You see, Jesus taught that Jewish legalism had it exactly backwards. They were all consumed with ceremonial, outward, ritualistic cleansing, emphasizing what goes into a person. This was an outside-in approach to holiness. In contrast, Jesus said it's all about an inside-out perspective. It's the heart that needs to be cleansed. And it's what comes out of the heart that is the ultimate issue. At core, it's a heart issue. Uh, True worship at core is a heart issue. And that's where we pick up our study in Matthew 15 this morning, verse 21. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. In Matthew, we have this recurring theme of withdrawal. Uh, As the hostility of the religious leaders was mounting and... It was happening at a rapid pace at this point, more and more, and it was in conjunction with national fickleness. In that context, we see Jesus more and more withdrawing to where he could be out of the limelight with just his disciples. His ministry turned more from a public emphasis to more of a private emphasis as time went along. And more and more, he was building into the lives of these faithful disciples, the apostles, who in turn would take the baton of truth and run with it after he was gone. Uh, Note this uh, withdrawal theme. Uh, Withdrawal to Nazareth, withdrawal to a secluded place, withdrawal to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and withdrawal to the other side. So we do see this, this withdrawing theme recurring here in the book of Matthew. In Mark 6.31, we see there was so much stress in Christ's ministry that he said to the disciples, quote, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. Well, as noted, that didn't last long. Then again, in Mark 7, which is a parallel text to what we have here in Matthew 15, it says in Mark 7.24 that Jesus, coming to the region of Tyre and Sidon, entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. He wanted some privacy. But then it quickly adds, quote, but could not be hidden. It was hard for Christ to have much privacy or quality personal time with just the disciples. Well, to get away from the religious antagonists and from the fickle crowds, Jesus withdrew into Gentile territory. Jews would not follow him there, right? Right. (laughs) So he withdrew into Gentile territory way up north on the coastline. Tyre was about 30 miles northwest of Capernaum, and Sidon about another 25 miles north of Tyre. It was in this territory, by the way, that God brought Elijah in the Old Testament days for a time of rest where he ministered to the widow of Zarephath. So just to note on a map where we're talking about, uh, Jesus, most of his uh, ministry uh, took place down here in this region around Capernaum, up here in Galilee. But now he's gone up, this is in Gentile territory, up to, into this region of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, very much Gentile territory, uh, not Jewish territory at all. Well, Tyre and Sidon were proverbial for their wickedness. Uh, these cities were denounced by both the prophet Isaiah and Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty one said that if Tyre and Sidon had been exposed to the mighty works that he did in the key cities in Galilee, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Well, this shows to 
uh, this serves to show how infamously wicked Tyre and Sidon historically had been. And yet Christ's point was that the towns where he did most of his mighty miracles in the context of the Jews was even more sin-hardened and more guilty of even greater sin for rejecting the light that they had been given through his ministry. That's enough background. Let's pick it up. Verse 22. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. This woman traced her ancestry back to the Canaanite people who were notoriously wicked. They were accursed by God and repeatedly God told his people, the Jews, Israel, when they came into the promised land, they were not only to conquer the Canaanites, they were to be completely wiped out and destroyed. That's what I mean. They were accursed by God. Well, Mark further identified her as a Greek Syrophoenician by birth. This means that she was Greek-speaking, but Syrophoenician by race, which related to her heritage, uh, related to the areas of Syria and Phoenicia, which included uh, the cities of Tyre and Sidon. Let me show you on a map what I'm talking about. Uh, The larger area district was Syria, Syro, and she was from this area specifically of Phoenicia. Uh, which would include uh, Sidon and Tyre. So this is kind of like the the smaller district of the larger district of Syria. So she is labeled in this way, uh, designated in this way, as we uh, see in Mark, uh, especially chapter 7 there. So not only was she a Gentile, but she was a Canaanite by background. And in the eyes of the Jews, this was the lowest of the low. You see, she was not only a Gentile, But she was an accursed Gentile, a Canaanite by background at that. And as such, she absolutely had no claim on the Jewish Messiah. Yet here she came asking for mercy as she addressed Jesus as Lord and as the son of David. Now, by definition, the person who asks for mercy asks for something undeserved. Mercy is the idea of having pity on the undeserving. It has that combination uh, being merciful, having compassion or pity towards someone that's undeserving. So she comes very humbly, pleading for mercy. She didn't say, here, I'm here for my rights. Uh, No, she didn't come that way. She came asking for mercy. And she came recognizing Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, as seen in her calling him the son of David. This is something which the Jewish religious leaders of Israel refused to do. Now, the title Lord, when used of faith in Jesus, consistently recognizes his deity, that he is Lord God. Lord simply means master, but when properly applied to Jesus, it recognizes him as God master, who is worthy of worship. Son of David is a messianic title. God promised David a descendant who would sit on the throne of David and reign forever. This would be the Messiah. So calling Jesus the son of David was a recognition that he was the promised descendant, the promised messianic descendant who would sit on the throne of David. Before Jesus was born, we have uh, the angel saying to Mary, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. 
And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So this was an amazing messianic confession by this Canaanite woman. And she was right on about his identity as Lord, who is the son of David. She obviously thought, because of who he was as Lord Messiah, he could do something for her concerning her demon-possessed daughter. Demons are spirit beings who have the ability to possess people, unsaved people. And when they do, it is never pretty. I don't know if you've ever had contact with demon-possessed people, but it's, a, it, it's not a pretty sight. They exercise great influence and control over people's mental faculties. expresses itself in different ways. But the bottom line is they torment people. They torment people. Demon possession does not go well with love, joy, and peace. That's not their experience. They're tormented. Her daughter was tormented. She knew it. She knew there was demon activity behind it. The devil and his demons ever make life miserable and never better for people. And you realize that. The devil never makes, comes with blessings. No, he doesn't. The demons and the devil, they do destruction. They're in the business of hurting people. And they exist to resist God and make people miserable. Well, this reality right here uh, made it blatantly clear that Christ's ministry of doing good was clearly not of the devil, right? I mean, where did, where did Christ go about afflicting people with misery? It didn't happen. Uh, kingdom blessing, kingdom blessing, and restoration followed his ministry. This, by the way, is what made the blasphemy of the Spirit so very serious when the religious leaders in Israel ascribed to Satan the wonderful, benevolent miracles that Jesus did in the power of the Spirit. It makes no sense to say this is of the devil when it's nothing but good. That, that's contrary to everything we know about the devil. And this is the point. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. He went about doing good. What's the devil go about doing? Oppressing people. Oppressing people. Well, the Messiah would be a deliverer who, who brings in kingdom release. As Isaiah 61, 1 prophesied, he would, quote, proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And that is speaking about spiritual bondage first and foremost. Well, she evidently knew something about the promised deliverance ministry of the coming Messiah. And of course, Jesus had a reputation at this point that extended way up north, even into this Gentile region. A little footnote here. Even though believers do wrestle with the demonic forces of darkness, even though we can be oppressed, we cannot be possessed, God draws a line as to how far Satan and his demons can go with us. He will not allow his children to be tempted beyond what we are able to bear. And we have statements like this in 1 John 4, 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 
We are now the temple of the living God. And God's temple is not shared with demons. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Demons do not come to live inside that temple. Uh, yes, they, uh, we can be tempted, we can be harassed, we can be, and we wrestle with these forces of darkness, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. But it's a different concept than possession. Verse 23, But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. Jesus' response was the silent treatment. He answered her not a word. Well, what, what, what was this? Was Jesus being mean and cold-hearted? No. There was a reason for his non-response. By the way, he didn't tell her to be quiet either, did he? No, he just didn't answer her. He didn't say anything. And there was a reason for his silence, which was about to become a teachable moment. Sometimes silence is the hardest response to accept. But we need to realize when our Lord is silent, there is a reason for it. And perhaps it is then we need to listen all the harder. The answer for the disciples often involved just sending people away. Get rid of annoying people uh, who are causing a scene. Bothersome people need to be sent on their way. I mean, that's the answer uh, the disciples have here. Before Jesus fed the 5,000 not counting women and children. The disciples on that occasion, as seen in Matthew 14, 15, said, send the multitudes away. It's kind of an easy solution. Just get rid of these problem people. <laughs> but Jesus did not do that. Here was Jesus' response as follows in verse 24. And it seems Jesus said this to the disciples, but evidently also within earshot of this Canaanite woman. Verse 24, he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus had healed Gentiles before, but it was always in Jewish territory, never strictly on Gentile grounds. The entire context here is Gentile. He is in Gentile territory, really not wanting to see anybody. He's in Gentile territory in that context, dealing with a woman who is as Gentile as it gets. She came asking for mercy in dealing with this demon problem. Jesus didn't answer her directly, but he said to his disciples, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now this is a humbling reality for Gentiles. It was not that Jesus didn't care about Gentiles, but they needed to realize that God's plan is to bless the world through the Jews. Messianic blessing runs through the Jews who have special claim to it because of God's special covenant relationship with them. On another occasion, Jesus found it necessary to educate a Samaritan woman, kind of along the same lines. Remember what he said to her in John chapter 4, verse 22? You worship what you do not know. <clears throat> By the way, that's a humbling statement too. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. The priority of God's program is the Jews first, and then to bring blessing to the world through the Jews. This has always been the order. This has always been the case ever since God called Abraham out of the nations. Remember what he said to Abraham, Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. 
and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here was the problem. The Canaanite woman approached Jesus on the basis of him being the son of David, which implied messianic blessings in relation to God's covenant people, the Jews. She, being a Gentile, was an alien from the promises and covenants God made to Israel. She was outside the covenant family. Alas, she was not a part of God's covenant family, and therefore alien to these messianic covenant blessings. And this continued really on up until the time of Christ. If you want to get in, you have to, you have to join in with the Jews, become a proselyte. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, At that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, the blessings that go with being the covenant people, and strangers from the covenants of promise. And God relates to, to people through covenants. You're aliens, strangers from the covenants, having no hope and without God in the world. This was the position of Gentiles outside the covenant family of Israel. Positionally, they had no claim on God or the Messiah and his covenant blessings. Although Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the son of David, yet as a Gentile, she had no right to approach him on that basis. The Messiah came on a Jewish mission, being sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And there's a consistency here. Remember when he sent the 12 out, it says in Matthew 10, these 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles. Don't go to the Gentiles. Do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus the Messiah came presenting the kingdom to Israel on the condition of repentance that would recognize him as Messiah Lord. The kingdom comes through Israel. Kingdom blessings come through Israel. This is God's plan. And the kingdom will not come until Israel finally accepts Jesus as their Messiah. Peter, after the day of Pentecost, said this to the Jews, even then, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so the times of refreshing, kingdom renewal, may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, kingdom restoration, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Until Israel comes to repentance and accepts Jesus as their Messiah, kingdom restoration will not come to the world. God's kingdom plan runs right through Israel and her Messiah. The Messiah's rule is Davidic in nature. The Messiah's throne is Davidic. The Messiah's kingdom release and blessing is tied to the covenant blessings which are Jewish in orientation. In Jeremiah 50, verse 6, God calls Israel his, his people and his lost sheep. The Messiah spoken of throughout the Old Testament was seen as the one who would gather these lost sheep. When Jesus presented himself as the shepherd to Israel, he was claiming to be the fulfillment of these messianic prophecies. Bible Knowledge Commentary says, In the Old Testament, a Canaanite had become a symbol of anything ceremonially unclean and ungodly. In the Millennial Temple, no such defilement 
will occur. For example, we have this statement in, uh, from the prophet Zechariah. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem, this is a, it's a kingdom context prophetically. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Canaanites have no part in the Messianic blessings of Israel. She could not appeal to Jesus on this basis, not as one alienated from the covenants. In the book of Acts, after Pentecost, again, uh, with the church now operating under the new covenant, Peter still referred in that context to Israel as the sons of the covenant. Notice what he says, Acts 3, 25, 26, speaking to Israel, you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant, which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Well, as church saints now living in the dispensation of the church age, we can be very thankful that God has now broken down this wall of division that separated the Gentiles from the Jews, from the Jewish covenantal blessing. We now, both Jew and Gentile, are on an equal spiritual footing in the church. And we Gentiles are pretty excited about it, aren't we? We should be. Notice what he goes on to say in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, 13 through 16. But now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that's where we were, Outside the covenant family, we were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one, equality, spiritual equality, made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. All believers in Christ through the blood of Jesus now partake in new covenant blessings, which first and foremost belong to Israel. We are grafted in. Romans chapter 11. By the way, if I get done with Matthew, if I ever get done with Matthew, I'd love to go to Romans. But anyway, but uh, we are grafted in, but grateful, forever grateful. Even so, we understand that the gospel goes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. There is an order of things. And God's order is to bless the world through his covenant people Israel. It's always been the case. If this Canaanite woman <clears throat> had no covenantal basis for appeal, then on what basis should or could she appeal? She got the point. If she was to appeal to Jesus, it was going to have to be strictly on the basis of who Jesus is as Lord. Totally apart from any other grounds. Because she had no other grounds of appeal. That's kind of a bad place to be. Verse 25. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. It's powerful. She came and worshipped him. Lord, help me. This combination of worship and calling him Lord is very significant. The Greek word proskuno, translated here as worshipped, 
literally means to bow down before in reverence or as an act of homage. Thomas Constable says it this way, proskuneo from proos, meaning before, plus kuno, meaning kiss or adore, means to prostrate oneself in homage before another in the full sense of worship, not mere reverence or courtesy. Proskuneo represents the most common Near Eastern act of adoration and reverence and also carries the idea of profound awe and respect. I think that is the spirit of what we have here. The idea is to bow down before in the sense of worship. She worshiped him and again called him Lord, saying, Lord, help me. If she could not appeal to him on the basis of the covenant relationship represented in son of David, then she would just appeal to him directly as Lord on the basis of sheer mercy. Again, Lord means master. And when used in reference to Jesus, it means God master. She was petitioning him as sovereign Lord who could do something about her situation just because of who he is as Lord. She dropped the son of David, said, okay, you're right, I'm outside. You're still Lord, help me. This was an impassioned plea of faith. It's comparable to Peter, who when sinking down in the waves, cried out to Jesus, Lord, save me, in Matthew 14, 30. Jesus is Lord over the waves, and he is Lord over the demons, and is Lord, sovereign master. He can do something about the forces of evil because he is Lord over them, and she recognized that. Lord, help me is a short prayer, but it is really a powerful prayer. When it comes from the heart that worshipfully aligns with the truth of Christ's lordship, I like this from Charles Spurgeon. He says, I commend this prayer to you because it is such a handy prayer. You can use it when you're in a hurry. You can use it when you're in in a fright. You can use it when you have not time to bow your knee. You can use it in the pulpit if you're going to preach. You can use it when you're opening your shop. You can use it when you're rising in the morning. It's such a handy prayer that I hardly know any position in which you could not pray it. (laughs) How often do we need this? Lord, help me. Lord, help me. That's a great prayer. Verse 26, but he answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. My goodness, he's really playing hardball, isn't he? The children here represent the covenant people of Israel as God's chosen people, and the little dogs represent the Gentiles who are outside the covenant family. Now, there is a measure of grace here, in the terminology that Jesus uses. You see, there's two different words in the New Testament used for dogs. One refers to mangy, often vicious mongrels that ran in packs and lived off the garbage and and dead carcasses of animals. But that's not the word that Jesus used. Instead, he used another softer word that referred to domesticated dogs that uh, the Gentiles often had as pets. Uh, Note these two different Greek words. Kuan, the common word for dog, negative connotation consistently in the scriptures. Uh, Kunarion, domesticated pet, uh, more positive connotation. He used this latter word. But before we get too soft on it, no matter how you take it, this was humbling. No matter how you take it, referencing someone as a dog is really pretty low down, Right? Somebody calls me a dog, I'd probably like to say, well, that person really appreciates me. 
Even if they call me a little dog. Might be tempted to call them a large dog. Anyway, uh, no matter how you take it, the Bible was clear that dogs were unclean animals. You just can't get around that. Leviticus eleven twenty seven. whatever goes on its paws among all kinds of animals that goes on all fours, those are unclean to you. Whoever touches any such carcass shall be unclean until evening. Made pretty clear. Now, natural thinking is so easily offended because we naturally are so full of ourselves. Can you imagine the average worldling responding to being called a little dog by Jesus today? They probably curse and walk off calling Jesus a racist, sexist, misogynist, bigot, and all kinds of other names. You can't get away with that. But in truth, in truth, there was mercy with the Lord. He was not cruel, but rather emphasizing truth to her. Jesus was emphasizing to her her position of unworthiness. Bob Deffenbaugh says, What Jesus says to this woman is what the gospel says to every sinner. You are not worthy to be in God's presence. Confess that you are a sinner worthy only of his eternal wrath and call upon him for mercy and grace. The gospel is not meant to flatter us, but to save us from our sins and the penalty of eternal wrath. The things our Lord said and didn't say to this woman resulted in one of the greatest declarations of faith in the New Testament. Why then do we seek to second-guess our Lord in his dealings with this Canaanite woman? In saving faith, we are humbled. In saving faith, we come to see our unworthiness. This is what mercy is all about. We don't come on our own merits because we only have demerits. We need pity because, you see, we are undeserving and unworthy. And until you get to that point, you're not there. Really, Jesus responded to this woman to draw out her faith to bring her to the point where she expressed it. He didn't shut her down. Didn't do what the disciples said. But really, what he was doing served to draw out her faith. This was ultimately for her greatest good. William MacDonald says the question was, would she acknowledge her unworthiness to receive the least of his mercies? We have the statement in the Old Testament that the just shall live by faith. Have you heard that statement before? The just shall live by faith. It's repeated three times in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, Galatians 3, and Hebrews chapter 10. But that oft-quoted phrase, the just shall live by faith, comes with a context from the Old Testament. It's a quote from the Old Testament, from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2 and verse 4. And notice what the context says. Behold the proud. His soul is not right. His soul is not upright in him. But the just shall live by his faith. Inferred here is that a saving faith is humbled before God. A true saving faith is humbled down before God. This woman came bowing down before Jesus, calling him Lord. That's the stuff of true faith. It personally recognizes Jesus for who he is as Lord. And this is what the Bible means when it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And what was her response? 
I mean, he just treated her with the silent treatment in relationship to the messianic designation sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then, when she just called him Lord, he points out, it's not good to take the food and give it, take it from the children and give it to the little dogs. What's her response? Okay, I'm out of here. You're going to be that way about it. No, 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 no. Verse 27, she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. What we have here is a very humble down response of faith. She fully accepted God's order of things. She didn't challenge it. She didn't argue that she was an exception. She didn't rant about her rights. She didn't protest that this whole arrangement was unfair and unjust. No, she once again called Jesus Lord. This is the third time in the text that she refers to Jesus as Lord. as seen in verse 22, 25, and now here in verse 27. And she got it right saying, yes, Lord. This shows she was submissive and humbled down before the truth of what he was saying. She acknowledged her unworthiness, her lowly position. And yet her faith believed that even in her humble position, the master also had something for her. Even if it was merely the crumbs of his mercy. Stanley Toussaint says, Then the woman with great insight sees herself in the place of a house dog, not a street hound, in the house of Israel. When she comes to him as a Gentile outside the pale of Jewish blessings, she is helped. She sees that she has no right to their blessings, but turns to him in faith alone. On the basis of her great faith, not because of her relationship to the covenant people, her request is granted. Verse 28, then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Jesus' assessment was that she had great faith. And consequently, her desire was granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Now, it is noteworthy that only two times in the Gospel of Matthew are people said to have great faith, and both of them were Gentiles. This is noteworthy. The first was the Roman centurion, as we saw in Matthew chapter 8, 5 through 13. He too saw his unworthiness and Christ's great authority, saying, Lord, I'm not worthy. I'm a Gentile. I'm not worthy that you should even come under my roof. Only speak a word and my servant will be healed. The second is this woman with a Canaanite background in Gentile territory. She too recognized Christ as Lord and her unworthiness. In both cases, they were convinced of the lordship authority of Christ and that he as God master could help them. He could be the deliverer, the savior. And in both cases, he honored their faith. This woman's faith was great because in spite of everything that seemed against her, she pressed on in faith. Nothing dissuaded her. Her background didn't dissuade her. Christ's initial silence didn't dissuade her. The disciples' efforts to get rid of her didn't dissuade her. Jesus saying he was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel didn't dissuade her. 
Jesus' statement, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs, didn't dissuade her. And the cumulative effect of all of these things did not dissuade her. In spite of all this, she believed in Jesus as Lord. She believed in his lordship as seen in her worship. She believed he could help her. She believed in him as as the deliverer, the one who had the power to deliver. And she wouldn't let go of it. Many have compared her, her great faith to the action of Jacob, who refused to let go until the Lord blessed him. Remember that in Genesis chapter 32? It says there, and he said, let me, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Evangelical commentary on the Bible says, by healing the daughter, Jesus reveals himself as the Gentile Savior. Here as in 8, 5 through 13, he heals at a distance in keeping with his present mission to Israel. Faith in the Bible always has the person of Christ and his word as its object. In the context that builds up to Christ's pronouncement of this woman's great faith are three notable things that relate to faith. Note these emphases. Christ's lordship, 22, 25, 27. Worship, verse 25. And great faith, verse 28. This is a package. Faith has as its object the Lord Jesus Christ. Note the nature of the faith of this woman. One, she believed in Jesus as Messiah Lord. Two, she believed in him as the Lord who is to be worshipped. Three, she believed in him as the Lord who could help her. And four, she believed in him as the Lord who is the deliverer. Faith believes in the lordship authority of Christ and bows before him in worship. A true saving faith is a worshiping faith. Saving faith is the first act of God-honoring worship that a person ever does. True faith believes in Jesus for deliverance. In short, it believes in him as Lord and Savior. Note the contrast in this context. The Jewish religious leaders who were rejecting Jesus worshipped in vain, as Jesus said in verse 9. But this Gentile woman, who had great faith, worshipped Jesus as Lord and Savior. And right there is the great issue in this whole context. In John 4, in an evangelistic context, Jesus told a Samaritan woman that the Father is looking for true worshipers. That's what, I mean, this is an evangelistic context. This ultimately is the great issue in life. It's all about having a true faith that truly worships. That worships Jesus for who he is as Lord and Savior. This is what true faith is about. It's about the Lordship of Christ. And true faith worships him for who he is as Lord. To be a true believer is to be a true worshiper. Without sounding redundant, no one is ever saved by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ without believing on him as Lord. Lord and Savior is a package. May I say this, however I want to say it, I say it graciously, but... The only reason Jesus is qualified to be Savior is because of who he is as Lord. And to believe in him as Savior builds on the premise that he is Lord. That's a package. In Philippians 3, Paul said those who bear the mark of true covenant relationship with God are those who, quote, worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ, Jesus. 
and put no confidence in the flesh. Jesus is Lord and Savior, and a true faith worshipfully believes in him for who he is. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Paradise Lost is a literary masterpiece written in the 17th century by the English poet John Milton, who lived from 1608 to 1674. Well, Paradise Lost presents Satan's rebellion against God as summed up in Satan saying, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Thus, Milton envisions Satan as accepting no secondary position. He would prefer hell than accepting any arrangement in which he does not reign supreme. Now, it is true that the original sin was pride. Satan's pride in heaven. And the besetting sin of mankind is pride. In order to be saved, we have to be humbled. We have to humble ourselves before the person of Christ and the cross of Christ. Before the lordship of Christ and before the saviorhood of Christ. We must come to humble ourselves before the truth that we are totally, and I mean totally, unworthy. As scripture says, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. All of them. Again, there is none righteous. No, not one. We must come to see ourselves as unclean and unworthy dogs. As it were. You above it? We must come to see ourselves as unclean and unworthy dogs, as it were, in God's eyes. We are no better on our own merits than a pagan, Gentile, Canaanite. We are all equally in need of the mercy and the grace of God, which is provided in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. He's everything to us. Paul said that he counted everything lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, to the end that he might gain Christ and the righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. The Bible says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jesus said, everyone who humbles, every, let me back up. Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself in saving faith will be exalted. Well, the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 acknowledged her unworthiness, but at the same time clung in faith to the truth that Jesus is Lord who could help her. And he did. And he will do the same for you if you in your heart will believe on him as Lord and Savior. It's still true. It's still true. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You know the oldest confession in Christianity, Christianity, you, you know what the oldest confession is recognized as? The oldest creed, the oldest confession of recognized Christianity, as far as what was happening in the early church, the oldest confession and creed is Jesus is Lord. Are you a believer? Let's say it together. Jesus is Lord. If you're a true worshiper, I think we can do better than that. Let's do it together. Jesus is Lord. But let me quickly say, it's not enough to say it with your mouth. It's got to be real in the heart. The Bible says it's with the heart that one believes and with the mouth confession is made. If you really believe it in your heart, let's say it one more time. Jesus is Lord. 
Indeed he is. Let's stand for our closing song.